This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, and verse 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks, Damien. Thank you so much, Damien. Thank you for having me here. It is always good to be in Central Florida. Uh, What a pleasure to be here with you. Um, The Ten Commandments, what a great series to be focusing on as you enter into a new year. And really, these commandments are sort of these major headings, these kind of collection points, if you will, these summary stations to gather together in a summary statement all that God's Word says about these various topics, about life and about protecting life and about promoting life and about flourishing that comes in the kingdom of God. So uh, what I like to do in thinking about these commandments, um, and stealing is no different, is to process them by reading a story, taking a larger narrative and thinking that through in terms of how does this get worked out in real time? You know, it's one thing to sort of look at a bird um, stuffed, you know, mounted on the wall. It's another thing to look at a bird in flight. And so you sort of see this thing, this gospel of hope for people like us that struggle with stealing worked out in real time in a gospel narrative. So I'd like to read for you uh, from a dusty old part of the Bible, but it really comes alive and is beautiful. Second Kings chapter five. So if you are taking notes, you might scribble that up there. Really the text for us is not only the Exodus uh, 20 section that Damien read, but Second Kings chapter five, the story of um, Gehazi stealing and how God met him and how he can meet us. So Second Kings 5, hear God's word to you. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send the letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I've sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know now that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well? And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when they came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house. And he sent the men away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go with you? When the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, it's, uh, it's not too stale since you're having a, a, uh, a women's lunch around the New Year, so I can still say that my first time to see you in January. 
Happy New Year. Uh, I always think about around New Year's, a time about 100 years ago. It was New Year's Day, actually 1900 on the button. And uh, the ticket that day was not to get to go to the Orange Bowl, the Rose Bowl, the National Championship game. The ticket, believe it or not, that everybody wanted in London on New Year's Day 1900 was to go and have a seat at the Royal Academy of Sciences and hear the most famous English scientist of the day, Lord Kelvin, speak. And Kelvin spoke on physics and he said, distinguished members of the academy, ladies and gentlemen, I have an announcement for you. There are no new discoveries at all for us in the realm of physics. All there are for us now are more and more precise measurements to take. Fitting that he would have a bizarre, obscure temperature scale named after him, but that's another story. Five years later, a funny little man who could not get into graduate school anywhere across all of Europe, he applied everywhere, literally across Europe. Nobody would have him because he was so bad at math. This funny little man works at the patent office in Bern, Switzerland, and he sees trains pass by on the other side of his office all day long, and that makes him think. And so in his spare time between checking patents, he writes five little papers that he stuffs on scraps of paper in his desk so his supervisor won't see. The first paper, paper talked about the motion of subatomic particles before subatomic particles had even been proven as existing. The second paper actually proved the existence of the subatomic world. The third paper said that light is both a wave and a particle. The fourth paper had that odd little formula, E equals MC squared. And the fifth paper said that actually space and time bend in on each other and affect each other. That funny little man was Albert Einstein, and in his spare time in 1905, he exploded the world of physics and showed us there is a universe still to be discovered in the realm of physics. I tell you that story not only because I love it as a New Year's story. I love it because I think it challenges us. So many of us as Christians are like Calvin, more than like Einstein when it comes to the gospel. We just think there's not that much left for us. Once we come into the church, once we sort of get that immediate rush of coming to Jesus and sins forgiven and beginning to live the new life, it can seem like all there is for us is just more and more precise measurement. We need to become like Einstein regarding the gospel, discovering whole new worlds. How do you do that? I think a great way to do that, ironically, is to do what you're doing right now, is to go back to God's law. You know, it's funny, I've taught a lot of kids how to play baseball over the years. I was a baseball player going up all the way through college. And when you see kids first starting to learn how to hit, what they do is they take the bat right here and they just wanna swing from right there, right? Well, you can't hit a ball that way. The only way to hit a ball right is you have to go back first. You have to coil before you can recoil and swing toward the ball. Same thing with a golf swing, right? You don't just start here and go like that to hit a golf ball. You take it back, and it's the back swing that actually creates the opportunity for the forward swing and the follow-through. What we think of as the swings to hit a ball high and far are really just an uncoiling and an unleashing of how we've coiled back on something. 
And I think that's a beautiful way to think about the law of God is we coil back, we go deep into the law, we reflect boldly and honestly with the law and that will allow us to unleash new hopes and joys in the gospel. I want us to do that this morning around this eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. I want us to think in terms of several questions and find fresh grace there from the gospel. First, how? How are we tempted to steal? How are you tempted to steal? When you think about who thieves are, right, in your lives, I just think about my next door neighbor in Austin, Texas. We lived there 10 years. He worked in political levels very high in the state of Texas and actually with the Republican Party all over the country. And uh, he was my next door neighbor. And um, he's now in federal prison at Maxwell Air Force Base, serving seven and a half years for absconding with $6 million of funds from the state of Texas. That's, that's what we think about when we think about a thief, right? I think about another friend of mine in my church in Knoxville uh, as we had a very urban downtown church that was a, a beautiful collection of all kinds of people. Greg was a part of our church and, and uh, Greg had a severe uh, addictive habit and uh, that caused him to commit armed robbery and desperation and he was sent away for five years. Incidentally, when Greg came back, I saw him the week before Thanksgiving, five years later, and he said, Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, it's so good to see you. We hugged and embraced, and he said, Pastor Paul, do you know what kept me going the last two years of prison? I said, what, Greg? I don't know. He said, thinking about beating you up when I got out. I said, Greg, how come? I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, because you used to write me and call me all the time, and you just stopped, and I just thought, I'm gonna beat him up when I get home. I said, well, hey, how about instead of beating me up, you forgive me and come over to my house for Thanksgiving? He goes, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> so those are the kind of people, right, we think about people who have been captured, right, by the law of society, and they've been caught out as thieves. But the irony of that, right, if we do that, is we fail to realize how deep this goes, how we are so guilty of stealing all the times ourselves, and what we end up doing when we sort of self-righteously say, well, my neighbor, he's a thief, and my friend, he's a thief, is you rob God of giving you that righteousness that is not your own. The righteousness we sang about, my one defense, my righteousness, is, oh God, I need you. And you're giving that up for a false self-righteousness. Well, I'm not a thief. I didn't embezzle. I didn't commit armed robbery. I didn't shoplift. I didn't take two sets of clothing and a couple of sacks of silver. I'm not a thief. When in fact, we all desperately are. How do we steal? We steal all the time, right? We steal time from our employers when we piddle at work. We steal life and dignity and honor from people in the industry when we look at pornography. We steal hope from people when we deny them their dignity, when we ignore them and devalue them as human beings. We steal all the time in all kinds of ways. I'm sure you've been doing this along the way, but, but the early Christians said, you know, where the law of God starts 
is to function for us like a mirror or a glass, they would say. That you look into this piece of glass and you see yourself and it's, it's not like Snow White's mirror, you know. Saying, who's the fairest of them all? You are my queen, right? You are Paul, you're lovely. Well, no mirror would say that, right? Okay, you know, but, but the God's law mirror says, no, you're broken. No, you really are a thief. Maybe you didn't embezzle $6 million, but you're stealing all the time. Time and honor and hope and life. You're stealing when you manipulate your children and discourage them and demand of them to try to prop yourself up. You, you steal when you manipulate your parents in the same kinds of ways. We're stealing all the time. How do we steal? In countless ways. Secondly, when do we steal? We steal all the time, but going deeper, if you think about Gehazi here, what makes him? What's his movement here? What's, what's sort of moving him and driving him to steal? What's his existential moment here? What's the win in his life? He's seen a great work of God and somehow it wasn't enough because it didn't involve him because he didn't walk away with anything. Because someone who was his enemy, who oppressed him, who stole little girls and took them far away and did perhaps unspeakable things to them, he got healed for free. Gehazi perhaps feels entitled. Where's mine? I'm the servant of the prophet. Where's mine? Perhaps he feels ignored, left behind. Where is God in all of this? See, the win really is ultimately for our thieving, right, is, is when we feel like we're children who know better than our father does. Our father says, thou shalt not steal. Our father says, wait upon me for my goodness. Our father says, trust me at all times and in all places, and I will give you the desires of your hearts. But we're like those children who always think we know better. You've heard about this psychological study. It's been promoted in, in various versions of this have been done across the years and decades, but there's a very famous study that was done recently um, with preschool age children, so sort of four and five year old children. And the offer is given to them, um, you know, to say, you've got a deal here. You can have one cookie right now on the table and you can have that and it's yours right now. Or if you will wait on that clock for the big hand to go around from the 12 to the 6, 30 minutes, you can have five cookies. And almost all the kids say, I gotta have this one right now. We can't wait. And we're just like that, right? We cannot wait upon our Father's wisdom and timing. It has to be right now, our way, in our time. This is the win of so much of our stealing. But if we go just a bit deeper, we ask a harder question. Why? 
Why are we so tempted to steal? What's underneath those existential moments of us feeling like we have to take? It's greed, isn't it? Interestingly, if we were a Hebrew scholar, which I am not, know enough to be dangerous a little bit, know how to read commentaries, Gehazi in Hebrew means greed, avarice. He's shown up in a lot of stories along the way, but it's not till here we sort of see his name really unveiled in terms of its meaning. Greed is what his name means in Hebrew. Traditionally, when early Christians talked about the deadly sins of pride and lust and sloth and all the rest, greed was, had a color associated with it like they all did. Greed has the color of yellow because it's a sickness of the body. It's a kind of diseasedness. It's a jaundice, if you will, of the soul. That that which God would give to us to truly nourish us is kept from us because we're greedy, because we have to take, and we have to take right now. Greed's that itch, that compulsion that says, I cannot live without this. I must have this. But what's at the core of greed, right? There's analysis of disease, right, that sees symptoms. But what's the defining core problem that's at the heart of greed is a lack of faith. Why do we take? Because we're driven by greed. And why are we greedy? Because we just don't really believe God is good and that he will care for us. What was the first theft in all of human history? It was Adam and Eve taking that which was not theirs, taking that fruit from the tree of life that God was reserving. And what moved them? They believed the lie that God was withholding from them, that God didn't have their best at hand, that God didn't really love and care for them. Why do we take Why do we take time? Why do we take goods? Why do we take honor? Why do we take dignity? Why do we take others' bodies that are not ours? Why do we take people's value away? Why do we take glory away? Because we really don't think we can trust God to care for us and to provide for us. So where does that leave us? We've coiled back hard on that backswing. Where does that leave us? Where's the grace for thieves like us? I think the grace and the hope first come in terms of a warning. There's a real warning here. Gehazi's story is like a lighthouse. Don't go this way. Don't go down this path of stealing, which is really driven by greed, which is really driven by a lack of trust and hope in God. Don't walk this way. Leprosy is attached to Gehazi as this kind of living symbol in his body, this living warning 
for us across the ages. Don't go this way. You'll be left with this residue of brokenness if you walk this way. The hard thing right about God's law is, as Paul says later in the New Testament, if you break it in one place, the reality is you're really breaking it in every part because it's all integrated. It's all there. Similarly, you know, when we sin, it's really uncovering this kind of nexus like like weeds in your lawn. Things are really connected in ways that you can't see until you start jerking and pulling on it. And so often when we give over to stealing, moved by greed, driven by this sense that we cannot trust God, what we also then find ourselves is being envious. I must have that. I must take that. I must take the silver and the clothing from this person because he's got more than I do and that's not right. I've got to have what he has, what she has. There's an old proverb about envy. It's an old Russian proverb. It's about a farmer out digging in his field, pulling up stumps and rocks so he can plant his field. And he, and he pulls at something with his little trowel and he discovers it's not a rock, it's an old piece of pottery. And he picks it up and begins to look at it and brushes it off. And as he brushes it off, a genie pops out of that piece of pottery and, and reveals himself to me. I'm a mighty genie. And you've uncovered me, and I will grant you one wish, anything that you want. You say, well, why wasn't it three? Well, it's a Russian proverb. They're poor, right? Just one wish. One wish. And so the peasant begins to ponder, and the genie says, all you're thinking, you need to know that this one wish has one condition associated with it, and that is that anything that you wish for, I will grant. But know this, I will give your neighbor twice as much as what you've asked for yourself. And so the old farmer ponders, ponders and ponders and remains silent for many minutes. And then he finally says to the genie, and he says very quietly, I want you to gouge out one of my eyes. See, that's where greed will take you. That's where theft takes us into that kind of hideous way of life of envy that leaves us with gouged out eyes, leaves us as lepers, stained and broken and apart from everyone else because all we're doing is hungering and yearning and even want to bat the good things out of the hands of others that they possess. This is a warning and this is God's grace saying to us, don't go down this path. Don't cultivate theft in your life. Don't let it be there. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow roots. Repent quickly. Pull it up when you see it, when you're convicted. And that warning is good, right? That's a, that's a gracious gift of our Father. But the problem with warnings, right, is they're like the warning not to think about pink elephants, right? You end up thinking about pink elephants. If all I'm doing is thinking this is a warning not to steal, then I'm going to end up thinking about all these ways. Well, the pastor told me all the ways that I do steal or I could steal. But the problem's even bigger, right? We are theft, people of theft. We are people that steal as a way of life in all the ways we talked about, in what we think, in what we say, in what we withhold from others, in how we work, in how we play. And how we integrate into family life, we're constantly taking. 
So the hope here, the deeper grace, right, is mercy for thieves like us. You say, well, Paul, I don't see a lot of mercy for Gehazi here. I just see leprosy clinging to him for the rest of his life. Well, so much of the Old Testament is written begging for a resolution. All of Scripture is intended to be thought about and read and pondered and meditated upon as one big fabric. And so much of everything that comes before the coming of Jesus is just shouting. Like the Advent season we were just in leading up to Christmas, we need a Savior. We are desperate for a savior. This story is unresolved. It's like my daughter Duggan, my second daughter, we moved to Austin to plant the church there in downtown Austin and we had three little girls at that time, one who was 5, our oldest Duggan who was two and a half and our little baby Bailey who I can't believe it now is getting married next month. Crazy uh, how time flies. But but we lived in this tiny little cottage while our home was being built in Austin. It was it was really three rooms and it was cramped and so you had to keep everything clean. And so Fran, my wife, was just, just passionate about getting everybody involved in cleanup and she just taught our kids this song. Maybe you've heard it right, it's an old one, but maybe it's still around, I don't know. Clean up, clean up, everybody, everywhere, right? Yeah, and so she taught them that and so Duggan just kept singing that one day. We were in there in the other room, Fran and I were, and she just kept singing, clean up, clean up, everybody, everywhere. And she said that for like 30 minutes, and it was driving me crazy, right? Because she wouldn't say the last phrase. She just kept repeating that over and over, because the last phrase, right, is clean up, clean up, everybody do your share. But it never resolved. It never did. Dude, finally, something just clicked. Like, I don't know, her hard drive kicked in or she rebooted and she finally said, everybody everywhere, everybody do your share. Hallelujah, it resolved. The only resolution of this story is Jesus has come. Jesus has come to take away the leprosy of our bodies and our hearts all the brokenness is created by our thieving. All the wreckage we create. You know, Naaman created wreckage, not just, I mean, I'm sorry, Gehazi created wreckage, not just for himself, but for others. Why did Elisha not want to take anything in the first place? Because he wanted it to go back to Syria, that there was a miracle here in God's name, completely free, completely by grace. Why does Elisha say it's not a time for accepting property or goods? or people to come be with us, or money, or clothing, because this is a radical moment of grace and it needs to be communicated as utterly free. And so Gehazi has not only hurt himself here, not only hurt his family here if he has one, having to be removed from them as a leper, not only hurting his master Elisha in not being able to serve in the same capacity any longer, he's robbed the flow of the gospel going back to Syria in radical ways. He is desperately in need of a savior. Just as we are. But we live on the other side of that resolution. And Jesus has come. And he is our hope. I want to tell you about my friends, the neighbors in Austin who embezzled the $6 million. 
I'm going to call them the Joneses. The Joneses um, were Christians while they lived next to us. But their lives were very private, very turned in upon themselves, very muted in their joy. There was always a sense that there was a heaviness about them, an inability to connect well or connect well with others' needs or lives. They tried to love us, but they really couldn't. They were so bound up. The Joneses had a yard man there four days a week. They had housekeeping there five days a week. They had a nanny there five days a week. One time when the Joneses were out, uh, my wife was asked to go over and, and sign for something that was delivered. And my wife couldn't help it because she had to sign the manifest. It was a single piece of furniture. It was an antique chair that was listed as a $35,000 chair. That's the kind of world in life that the Joneses were living. And yet they were miserable. Well, I reconnected with the Joneses around his trial and conviction. They asked me if I would write a a letter uh, for his sentencing. And I said, sure, I'd love to. And so everybody was lined up on the sentencing. You had all these friends writing notes of encouragement. Um, You had uh, his legal team presenting those and saying we would ask for a middle to short range sentence of a couple of years. Uh, The district attorneys, the federal district attorneys agreed with that. They said, Mr. Jones has corroborated with us in every way we could ask. We think a term of two to three years would be an appropriate sentence for him. And the judge just listened to everybody and then just simply said, Mr. Jones, the law allows me to sentence you to 90 months. And I would sentence you to more if I could. 90 months. Seven and a half years in federal prison. Far away. Um, That began to break the Joneses. In a way like nothing had before. They had gone through cancer. They had gone through various job changes, but they were utterly broken by that. They are, without a doubt, the most authentic Christians I know today. They are thankful when I take them, when I take now the wife and the children to get a hamburger. They are thankful when I go and visit. They are thankful when others try to help them with daily or weekly or monthly needs or maybe find some temporary housing for them because they have nothing. And yet they have this sense that they have everything in Jesus. No more pretense, no more self-righteousness, no more better than others because of what they possessed. They have nothing. They have only guilt and shame in themselves. And so coming to Jesus with those, they have found those things replaced with joy and hope and freedom in him. I have become that guy, the guy I swore I would never be. The guy, because I travel for a living now, the guy that just looks at his travel apps all the time. Do you know these people? Maybe one of them is your spouse. They're just obsessed with their travel. That's me. I've become this hideous guy. I've become platinum level after six months of traveling. That tells you I've traveled quite a lot. Um, it's just crazy. And so I just learned a new benefit of platinum this week. And that is that you get to have the next level of seating immediately 
if you sign in the right way for an ordinary seat. It's just yours. It's part of the privilege of being platinum. Woohoo! Your privilege in being a Christian is that you embrace Jesus with a righteousness that is not your own, that comes from God and is by faith. It's not about how good you do at not stealing or all these others on the list. It's about Jesus utterly giving you a righteousness you could not create. And you get to trade all your sin and shame for an identity of sonship or daughtership and righteousness before God and peace. And that's the seat that you get to sit in and travel in and live your life from. Lastly, the grace that is here is not just a warning, not just a hope for us when we fail in a righteousness on our own, but is actually what Christians called the last or the third use of the law historically. The law is given to restrain evil in the world. The law is given to be a glass to show us our sins and a guide to lead us to Jesus. But lastly, Christians said the law is a pattern for holy living. And out of that freedom that you have in Jesus, we can, you can, I can, become like some of these other characters in this story, like the slave girl who just says, you've captured me. I'm far from home. You perhaps have oppressed me in ways that are brutal and horrible and unspeakable. But I want you to find God's mercy and healing. You can be like the servants, the soldier servants of Naaman who say, stop, put away your rage. Put away your pride and just go embrace what God has given in the promise of dipping in this river. You can be like Elisha and be an agent of healing through sharing your gospel hope to people who have been your worst enemies. And you can be like Naaman who says, I love the Naaman part because he says, I'm gonna screw up again. <laughs> I'm gonna steal honor from God again. I'm gonna go bow down in the pagan temple when my master makes me. But when I do, would you give me a little bit of dirt from this place so I can bow and worship the one true God, even if it's in secret? You can live like this. We can live like this. When we look to Jesus and hope in him and beg him, not to help us cover over our sins, but freely to bring them about theft and all the rest and to beg him for a righteousness that is not our own and the life of his spirit to begin to walk in his ways in these radical ways that press the gospel forward in our lives and out in the world. I loved your theme that I saw up on the screen. Why do you exist as a church? For personal transformation, for authentic community, and for cultural engagement. The key to all of that is coiling back on that law and finding grace there and then begin to swing high and deep for hope in your own life, for authentic relationship with each other. And so that Orlando becomes a different place. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you. Thank you that you give us stories in the Bible, not just commands or not just instructions, but stories to to make these things come to life. Thank you for this story of Gehazi. It reminds us we really are thieves. Uh, we, we steal all the time from you and others. We, we do it in countless ways and, and we're really driven by greed, which is driven by a lack of faith. But Lord, you are full of mercy. And may we find that mercy afresh this morning. Mercy not to go those ways, yes, but mercy for us when we do, when we realize we have, when we are undone by our stealing. May you give us hope and joy through your gospel, Jesus. Freedom, certainty of forgiveness, and new power, new hope to become people who can give, who can be people of radical generosity rather than takers. And we pray all of this in your name that we might live the liberated life of the gospel. Amen.